Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Christopher Shavitsky for a conversation about the construction of buildings in ancient Rome. And in the conversation, we're going to focus in on specifically the city of Rome and speak about things like the materials that were used, architecture, assembling the buildings, the evolution during this period, and more. Dr. Shavitsky is a British scholar. He's a postdoctoral researcher at the Norwegian Institute in Rome. He's the author of the monograph, Architectural Restoration and Heritage in Imperial Rome, which was published by Oxford University Press. And he joins us today from Rome. Welcome to the call, Chris. Thank you for having me here, Andrew. Nice to be here. It's great to have you on the call. Okay, so we're chatting about building construction uh, in ancient Rome. So more specifically, uh, the city of Rome uh, in the ancient period. So to put some parameters around the term ancient for this conversation, uh, where do you suggest we focus? So maybe from about the late 6th century BC, so the 500s BC, and then we can take it through perhaps to around the, the late 4th, early 5th century AD, which is a period that traditionally has been considered in, in inverted commas, the fall of the Roman Empire. but there's still some very interesting building activity going on in that period of the city and it's quite different to what before and the reason for starting perhaps in around the the sixth century bc is that's when rome really first start to see it being a recognizable city Mm -hmm. and is that because uh there's still actual vestiges like actual um remnants of buildings that go that far back or is it because in the archival records that's as far back as scholars can kind of get to with enough knowledge on this subject it's because of what we see in the archaeological record we so we still see the remnants of those buildings so if we were going on the the kind of the as you call it um, archival record the, the historical tradition or mythological tradition in some ways they place the foundation of rome in the eighth century so a good two and a half um centuries before that okay. um that tradition with romulus and remus is, is highly doubtful there's evidence of habitation in the city of rome going right back to the first millennium bc but whether those kind of these small settlements could be considered a city i think it is is very questionable and it's really in the late sixth century that we start to see what we might call monumental building mm. um which is building with um, large blocks of locally quarried stone and building very large monumental structures. Specifically, it seems um, religious structures, so temples. And there's a couple of parts of these that still survive, uh, which attest to that. Okay. Um, For the ones that still survive, can you speak a little bit more about that in this early period in terms of to what degree do they survive? So the, um, the largest, uh, but also in some ways the most controversial, is, is the temple. It's known as the Temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus. So the god Jupiter Optimus Maximus, the greatest and best, or Jupiter Capitolinus, because it's named after the hill that this temple is on. So it's the, the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill in Rome. Um, what survives 
it seems uh, the substructures or the the podium on which this temple sat and it's a absolutely colossal podium um it is in debate precisely how um the, the size of it recent estimates have been about 74 uh meters in length by i think it's in its um another 50 something meters in width the only parts of it unfortunately that seem to survive however mm-hmm. are the substructures or this giant podium and what we're missing is the superstructures the temple itself has gone although people have identified possible fragments of, of columns and of um certainly bits of terracotta decoration from it and that does mean that there has been some debate over whether the temple was as large as the structures that it sits on but regardless whether what the temple itself looked like whether it was that large the very fact that they are building these enormous podiums um and there's huge earthworks and um engineering projects going on in the city so the what will later become the forum romanum the, the famous forum of rome is drained in this period which is you know huge undertaking and there's a few other sites dotted around the city where we see them building up large earth embankments in order to place um temples on top so you, you really see major um, earthworks and engineering projects that are taking place in the sixth century I think you mentioned one type of material uh, with the Temple of Jupiter uh, Optimus Maximus um, on the Capitoline Hill. Can you speak more about the materials that uh, is believed to have been used in building this these kind of buildings at this period of time or the early uh, ancient period? Yes. So the Temple of Jupiter and some of the contemporary temples that are constructed with it are built largely, the stone that they're using is tuf, sometimes called tufa or, or tufo, depending if you're an archeologist or a, a um, geologist. It's a volcanic stone um, that is a solidified volcanic ash effectively. So, so Rome um, uh, has the, the, the geology around Rome is volcanic, the hills of Rome, um, are made up of volcanic stone. Tufa, it comes in various grades and degrees of it. Uh, what they were building these early temples out of came out of the hills of Rome themselves. They used them as quarries. It's a pretty durable stone. It's not a particularly uh, aesthetically pleasing stone. It doesn't take, unlike, say, marble, it doesn't take a fine edge. So when you, you cut it, it, it remains relatively rough. It can't be polished and smoothed so you would place a layer of limestone plaster over the top of it which serves both to protect the stone but also then you can um decorate it in a way and so at the same time that the romans are building their temples out of this local stone um tufa uh, you have the athenians over in athens are beginning to use marble on a large scale and so there's quite a marked difference they're both i mean the interesting thing of this temple of jupiter Optimus Maximus is there's nothing else like it in central Italy. And in terms of scale, it's far more comparable to what's going on in, in Sicily and in the Greek East. Um, but in terms of materials, the Romans are using local material. Um, the decoration for the roof, so the statuary would likely be terracotta and the roofs would be wooden. Um, and there is some discussion over whether columns at this point are, are wooden um, or, or made of tufa as well. I was 
so so literally uh, just this morning, Toronto, Canada time, I had a conversation with uh, an, uh, another professor, Dr. Uh, Olympia Babu, on sculptures in Greece and the, 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 the conversation of marble being used in this period coincidentally came up as well. So that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting in, in Greece uh, yeah. during this period of time. Uh, terracotta, uh, which also came up in that conversation. Uh, can, you, can you describe more um, what, what terracotta is for anyone that's, uh, that it's a new, new term for? Yeah, so terracotta is uh, fired clay. Um, so terracotta also, I mean, it's used for any variety of reasons in the ancient world. It's what uh, plates, bowls, you know, uh, cookware is made out of. Um, but it's also used for making decorative ornaments, so including statues, um, which would be they're fired and then they're, they're, the statues themselves are hollowed, are hollow. Um, you make them using a mold. But also um, these temples are heavily ornamented. So they are crammed with decoration, whether it's statues, whether it's um, what we call uh, antifixes, which are decorated panels that might run along the roof of the temple. And then this is also painted as well. So while you might not, I mean, in some instances, you might paint your earthenware bowl, the temples, the statues themselves are um, the terracotta. You wouldn't see that it's um, very highly painted. And, and quite a lot of this survives not necessarily from Rome, but from uh, cities and settlements around Rome, particularly Etruscan sites. Uh, which neighbour Rome and slightly to the north of it. And, and there's some really fantastic sculptures from temples that have survived uh, and that you can see them in the museums. What's the contrast or the different utilities between using wood? And I think you uh, briefly touched on it, but I want to clarify between using wood and terracotta in, in these buildings in this period. It, um, I, it kind of depends, I suppose, on what you want to use them for. So the wood is going to be used um for the roof um greece at this point they're already using for the the lintels um using stone um the problem with using stone for lintels is it, it's sheer weight and it also means that you usually have to place columns closer together so that the stone you know so that it can support it wood you can create very complex systems of uh supporting the roofs as well it can be uh, slightly lighter. Um, terracotta is being used for tiles, which protect the wood and protect the roofs, and then also for the, the decorative elements as well. What What is known about early engineers in this period? Is there anything known about the actual, um, and they didn't have regulatory bodies, I'm sure, back then, but if, uh, if we can use that, that term, um, uh, what is known about engineers that were uh, designing from a scientific perspective these buildings? From Rome itself, very little. We have, from, from this period, there is more evidence that comes out of uh, the Greek East, so mainland Greece, and then also Asia Minor, which they're, they're Greek cities on, on Asia Minor. And that's where we get the first architectural treatises that are written. So these are architects or engineers who are writing down their various methods of construction. And a lot of what they seem to be writing down is about how they overcome challenges. 
and particularly about engineering. So how they're lifting, and this is to do with um, these large marble temples in the east, but how they're lifting particular columns into place, how they're moving marble blocks. So we have the names of some of these individuals um, from the east. We have, I think, virtually no names of Roman architects or Italian architects from uh, this period in uh, in in our sources mm -hmm. that survive. In fact, we have even throughout the entire Roman period, we have relatively few names of architects. We know that there's plenty of architects, but their names um, we don't have as many as, as you might expect. It seems like in the early period in in Rome, um, there's a, a lack of record on a lot of things. So I'm not I'm not surprised, in comparatively, right, to a place like yeah. uh, Greece. So I'm not surprised that uh, there's not as much known about engineers or architects. Um, so if they're putting these blocks of stone, can I call it stone? Is that a fair yeah. term, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. so they're building a building like the Temple of Jup Jupiter. Are they just are they just putting the blocks on each other? And I and I'm using somewhat general. I know I know there's a little more sophistication than that. But are they putting the blocks on on top of each other? Um, and then does that over time complete the wall, or are they putting some kind of um, adhesive? type of material so that the um, the stones stick together better? So, yes, yeah, so so the type of construction, it, it's known as uh, opus quadratum, um, which is quite literally kind of just large, mm -hmm. regular blocks. And um, they're effectively stacking them up and it's being held together by its own weight. I don't know with the temple of jupiter because partly because there's the the superstructure doesn't survive but certainly for later buildings what you do have and it, this can be on quite later buildings but um you'll have uh, metal clamps which hold the blocks in place and so within the the center of a block then you can have uh, an iron clamp which is held in place with lead another block is lowered on top of it and the same happens with uh, columns so while later on you start to get columns that are a single piece, uh, a monolith, to start with, they tend to be in drums, which is why when you see them collapsed, sometimes you have you know, piece after piece after piece. These columns are held in place, um, one on top of another by, by clamps, mm. uh, or, or you know, they can be iron or, or sometimes even wooden, I think, support um, uh, pieces that go into sockets and then you kind of fit another one on top. And generally, their own weight will help hold them in place, but this just secures it as well. Um, we spent a little bit of time on the Temple of Jupiter as an example, um, but then obviously there would have been uh, residential uh, dwellings as well. What's the what was the main difference between how a temple may have been built in a residential d dwelling, if anything, in this period? For this period, um, kind of we early, have, early ancient period. Yeah, for early, um, we have far less uh, clear evidence for um, residential structures in terms of what they look like above pretty much ground level. Okay. So we have um, floor plans. They're relatively small, particularly compared to what we later associate with the Roman house or the, the Italian house. Um, but one of the problems in Rome, or it's, it's one of the things that makes Rome a continually fascinating city, but it's one of its problems, is that it there's been 3,000 years of habitation here, and it's just built over, built over, built mm -hmm. over. Mm -hmm. And so 
when we get down to these earlier levels, you know, beyond kind of, you know, you're lucky if the wall is standing to knee height. And so it's very difficult to tell things such as ornamentation um, of what these houses are like. And likewise, the, the literary sources that we have. So we have later Roman and Greek authors who um, they might be writing in the, the first century BC and they're describing the sixth and fifth century BC. But to an extent, they've no idea what went on. And so when they're describing um, structures that exist, they know that a certain individual has a house, but the way in which they describe it very much reflects their own day rather than is an accurate record of what came before. So we do have, you know, the um, houses have been excavated and, and domestic dwellings have been excavated, but it, it's difficult to mm-hmm. pull out too many concrete mm-hmm. um, kind of... Uh, to, to make too many generalizations about it. Apart from the houses, it seems are relatively small um, at this place, particularly con- compared to what we start to get later on. Yeah, and uh, it sounds like concrete evidence is, is lacking a little bit in this particular area, but is it supposed that to, to a large extent, they would still be using stone in this period, uh, terracotta? Is that a fair pr- presumption? Yeah, it's stone, terracotta, wood. wood. So. Yeah. Wattle and daub, um, kind of, uh, there's a tradition in, in um, ancient Rome, they had this idea that the founder of the city, the mythological founder, Romulus, lived in this uh, straw and thatch hut, of which they seem to preserve a hut that they thought was Romulus's. In fact, there seem to be several huts still dotted around the city, even into the imperial period. Um, we might think of them as kind of like a shepherd's cabin, or something like that. Um, it's difficult to generalize because so much of the city has not been excavated mm-hmm. and what tends to survive, it's far easier to see it when we've got a stone house or when you've got a domestic structure that is made of something durable like stone. Um, but presumably in the archaic city in this early period, a, a lot of structures are you know, they're constructed of things such as wood, um, straw, thatch, and, and that's you know, apart from the only thing that you see in the archaeological evidence are holes in the bedrock where they bored in to put mm-hmm. posts um, in for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if there's a city there, um, and as, as long as you, you, you said, that actually came up as well in uh, conversation on the myths and legends of, uh, of Rome that I had with uh, uh, Professor uh, Dr. Gary For- Forsyth. And I, I had asked him, you know, in that area, when it comes to the founding of Rome and legends and myths, it, has it reached a plateau or is there more to be found? And that was that was somewhat the same thing he said, is that uh, there's only so much you can excavate at any given time because there's still a city there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's speak about the evolution then in this period. Um, we've kind of covered the early period. How does... Uh, engineering and architecture, the, the process of building these these buildings, uh, the materials used, how does it evolve? And I know we're covering a lot of ground uh, in that answer. So if you could try to please uh, categorize it uh, in a reasonable way on kind of like the milestone type, like uh, markers that occurred in, in the evolution uh, period in this, in this period of time. Okay, um, so probably so after the the fifth century, one of the key moments 
seems to come for, for Roman architecture in, in the late fourth, um, early third century, when we start to see um, an increasing um, appearance of what we might consider Hellenism or Hellenistic architecture appearing in Rome. Um, materials are still remaining relatively the same. They're still building with uh, tooth, although it's coming from further afield, they're getting it from other sites in Italy as well. But one of the big changes that we see from, I suppose, really the, the late fourth century through the third, and then particularly picking up in the second century BC is the influence of architectural ideas from, uh, from Greece. So, and this influences, uh, or this impacts on both the design of buildings. So the way, the way in which temples um, are planned and look, but also the materials that, that start to be used as well. And so it's really when, I mean, people have said it when Rome comes into contact with, with the Greek world, Rome has always on some level been in contact with the Hellenistic world, so the, the Greek world, and the Greeks are in southern Italy at this point, also uh, in southern France, as well as mainland Greece, Asia Minor, Sicily. Mm -hmm. um, but there is this new interest in Greek architectural uh, style or Greek architectural cultures, um, which seems to then have a big impact on how things are being constructed in Rome. And as I said, both in design and in terms of materials as well. What's known about the labor force then that was used? And I know in the early period, it sounds like there's not as much records. If there is, please, uh, you know, please, please share. But what's known as we go through this period uh, about the labor uh, force? Um, yeah, so uh, according to, again, to Roman, Rome's own historians and authors, which I think we need to take with a pinch of salt, uh, things such as the Temple of Jupiter Capitolinus or the Great Drain of Rome, the Cloaca Maxima, were constructed by the citizens who had been pressed into labour and forced to give their labour for that. Um, that is quite possibly a later invention. It might have some grounding in truth. Uh, there's been discussions in scholarship over the extent to which Rome relies uh, for construction on free labour or on slave labour. It's um it's still a discussion that goes that, that's going on but it seems that actually free labor uh is is hugely important to the roman building industry um in terms of actual the professional architects as well um we have homegrown italian architects but also they're getting in uh architects from the greek world and we've got the names of some of them who it appears are coming over to Rome and, and constructing buildings in the city or being brought over um, by Roman patrons uh, in order to construct kind of Greek style or, or Greek looking buildings in the city as well. Mm -hmm. um, did companies exist in the, uh, if we kind of just, you know, the loose contours that, you know, they're, they're much more formalized in present time, obviously. But when you look back in this period, is it is it safe to say that actual construction companies existed? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question. It's not one that I really know enough about. What we what we do have is you have individuals set up businesses, and that can be um, you know that uh, they set up um, 
hesitate to use the word company just in case it's it's anachronistic but um you know they will have a large labor force at their disposal they'll have professional engineers and architects um that work for them and all of this is before of course the imperial period when when some of that comes under um centralized uh control it, it's a subject that i'm pretty certain people have worked on but it's not one that i know enough about really to to comment on yeah no 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 problem um are you aware of so architects in this period of time uh was that considered a profession and again i think we all know the regulatory bodies that exist in modern day terms probably didn't exist but did but did people consider themselves certain people consider themselves architects or engineers um to the same extent that somebody might consider themselves an artist in that period yes yeah um it's uh we have um a number of individuals that identify themselves as architects the type of role that the architect took on varies from probably the modern day practice um but even even with the modern day like who an architect is can vary a huge amount and we have some architects who never design buildings, but they call themselves an architect because they write about architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, in the ancient world, the architect could be responsible for everything from potentially project management to you know, sort of sourcing resources, to designing the building, um, to taking care of the workforce. Uh, it seems a very flexible role, but we certainly have individuals that identify themselves as that. In terms of their status, um, in the ancient world, it, it it does seem to vary. In the Greek world, they seem to be held in very high regard. In Rome, um, we have an architect uh, who writes a treatise, Vitruvius, and, and he seems very under the impression by the time he's writing that it's a profession that has not been um, given the credit that it deserves in Italy. Uh, but it certainly exists as a, as a profession. And in fact, we get a number of inscriptions on buildings that survive where the architect has placed their name uh, as well. Sometimes it seems that they are Italian architects with Italian or Latin names, but they've written the inscription in Greek or tried to Greekify their name because there seems to be some kind of cultural cachet of being, you're better off being a Greek ar uh, architect than being a Latin one. There seems to be something going on with that. Is there an architect in this period that... Uh that really interested you when you were studying, uh, as you study this subject? So from the, for the Republican period, one of the, there's a, there's some very important Greek architects we know about that, that, uh, that come over to Rome and design structures for, for, I'm still interested, I think in Vitruvius, who's a little bit later than this. Vitruvius is writing, he's a, he's in the late Republican, period so the first century bc and then he writes a treatise uh during the early years of august the first emperor augustus's reign in the 20s bc um it's the only architectural treatise to survive from the ancient world it's called 10 books on architecture hmm. uh it became hugely important in the renaissance when um italian architects looked to vitruvius borrowed certain ideas, certainly borrowed the structure of his work from it. Um, but it's a hugely important resource for us. Firstly, because it gives us the names of all of these other architects. It tells us a little bit about different building traditions. Um, he himself, as far as we know, only ever constructed one building, which has never been excavated. 
which is a basilica, and his reputation rests pretty much entirely on this treatise. But he's a uh, he's a really interesting author, um, and he used to be considered, I think, more of just a kind of he tells you how to mix cement. But actually, he's do- he's doing a few more interesting things in his text than that. When when you give it a read, um, would he have been? Uh, con- is he considered credible? Because you mentioned he only worked on one one project, but but wrote this what what sounds like very uh, well read treatise uh, was used in the Italian Renaissance period, for instance. Uh, is what he's writing about? Is it considered credible? Would it work if followed? Yes, I mean, um, so I think on a lot of the technical points. Um, I mean, I've never tried mixing his, you know, three parts lime to one part water and things like that to make concrete. Um, but on the technical stuff, I think it seems fine. People have considered the time that writing, they're a bit surprised. He seems a bit of an old fashioned author in some ways. Uh, we only know of this one building. He might have, he might have worked on others or presumably he did mm-hmm. work on others. Um, Vitruvius, like a lot of Roman architects, it seems started his career in the military. Uh, and he started working in the artillery, which he says actually is a crucial element of architecture is is learning um, skills that you might learn while working with catapults and ballistae and, and things like that. And indeed, his his idea of architecture, he, he says under architecture, um, uh, engines in terms of um, things like... Um, um siege weapons that comes under architecture water clocks come up come under mm-hmm. architecture mm-hmm. um i think particularly in the renaissance they they got quite frustrated with him partly because of the 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 um the version of the text that they had was quite corrupted um and also he's he's not necessarily the most straight or forward author and i think they got quite instructed that um, that's also some of the things he says didn't match up with what they could see. They could see the ruins of ancient Rome. He says that a building should look this way. Um, it should have, you know, the, the columns should be of this height and they would measure them and then they're not. And they got quite frustrated. And, um, but that, that's a, that's the difficulty between Vitruvius wasn't trying to instruct us, you know, how ancient Rome looks. He's trying to do something else with his text and we're using it in a, a different way. I think a lot of times if you try to recreate something that's over, uh, a thousand years old or so, uh, you might run into those difficulties. Exactly. Um, I want to talk about doors briefly and then work our way to uh, some uh, some wind-up uh, qu- questions. It's kind of an odd spot to bring up doors, but I'm, I'm curious about the doors. I want to cover the doors because it is still part of this topic. Um, what's known about doors in this period, how they were, con- if they existed in, in, in buildings, including dwellings, homes, um, and then how the uh, door doors evolve over time? Yeah, so um, uh, if you want to go see some ancient Roman doors, if you go to Pompeii, uh, you can see some casts of them where, uh, in the same way as um, I'm sure you've seen the casts of humans that they created uh, using plaster by filling the void, they also did that with furniture and any organic material it can be done with, and that includes doors, which so on these um, big houses down at Pompeii, they have sliding doors um sliding wooden doors uh some of the public buildings in rome still have ancient bronze doors on them so the doors that are on the pantheon these enormous bronze doors 
don't actually belong at the Pantheon. They likely come from another ancient building, but they are mm. ancient. Um, the doors that are on, it's, it's the Basilica of um, San Giovanni and Laterano, so it's a, it's a Christian building, but the doors on that are ancient bronze doors. They're absolutely uh, enormous, um, huge, uh, made of bronze. But yes, on, on most um, most houses, we should think, imagine they've got uh, wooden doors. The ones we see in Pompeii are often uh, sliding doors, particularly on a house so that there's an idea, if, you, if you're a member of the elite, if, um, if you're a well-off Roman in public life, you want to be seen and there's an element that the doors of your house should be open and so you are visible from the street in that way. Mm. Um, and if you were to summarize the evolution, so if we started at the start of the period, we spoke uh, quite a bit about different aspects, materials and, and uh, um, you know, how, how they're actually used in the, in the structures. And then working our way to the end of the period, if you were to summarize the advancements of building construction throughout that period from the start to the, the end, which is more 5th century-ish, AD, um, how would you describe that? Yeah, I, I probably gave us too big a, a period because um, there's so many developments, but probably the, the the major development and what we often think of as Roman architecture, which I haven't mentioned, is um, the use of concrete, uh, which begins in earnest in the second century BC, but by the first and second century AD, that is when they're using concrete in truly inventive ways to create spaces that perhaps we come to think of as a quintessentially part of Roman architecture, something like the Pantheon. And you see this shift where a temple like Jupiter Optimus Maximus or in Athens, um, the Parthenon is about the, the mass of the building. What the Romans start to do with concrete is rather than using it just to build things up, but it means that you can create interior spaces inside. And so it allows them to create the enormous bath buildings, which then by that point, they're importing huge amounts of marble from across the empire, all different colors, which they cover these buildings in. And you get this incredibly rich, um, aesthetically, totally different to early Roman buildings, um, incredibly rich color schemes, huge buildings with these big vaulted spaces. Mm. Uh, and I think some of that is what we'd consider, the, you know, if you come to Rome today, you can still appreciate part of that when you walk into the Pantheon. You got the concrete in, in your answer. Yeah, so it, exactly. it, it's there. Uh, this has been very enjoyable chatting with you today, Chris. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It was really nice to talk to you. So again, everybody, the monograph that I had mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Shavitsky has written and is also relevant to this conversation, Architectural Restoration and Heritage in Imperial Rome. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Chris and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.